0: Made Visible helps people with invisible illnesses feel seen and heard. It provides a platform for people who seem fine, but aren't, to share their experiences. It also helps to create a new awareness of how we can be sensitive and supportive to those with invisible illnesses. Please note this podcast is intended to provide information and education and is not intended to provide you with a diagnosis or treatment advice. You should consult with a licensed or registered healthcare professional about your individual condition and circumstance. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in. Today's guest is someone I've been following on Instagram for a while and was honored to have her join the Immune Deficiency Foundation at our annual conference, where she was a keynote speaker last year. Alana Jacqueline is a patient advocacy strategist working to humanize rare disease and women's health through new media. Welcome, Alana Jacqueline. So happy to have you here today.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: So let's start off. Tell the listeners who you are where you're from and what you do.
1: I'm Alana Jacqueline. I am a patient advocate and an author of the book, Surviving and Thriving with an Invisible Chronic Illness and the upcoming book about medical gaslighting. And I am from the Portland, Oregon metro area.
0: Can't wait to dig into the book stuff, but let's go back a little bit. You searched for a diagnosis for 19 years. How and where did that
1: begin and how did you get to that diagnosis? Buckle up. No, actually, it's 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 funny. It's very similar to your story. So while it feels like a lifetime to wait to 19 to get a diagnosis, now that I'm in my 30s, I realized that I was just a toddler with a driver's license until I was 29. But growing up, I was living with a lot of symptoms that really went unchecked. I was your stereotypical sick kid, always had something, sinus infections, bronchitis, stomach problems. And I was never able to recover from those illnesses without major intervention. And even when I did, the next infection was always just right around the corner. And my mom, you know, she would take me to the doctor, to different pediatric specialists. We would see allergists and pulmonologists. But at the end of the day, no one really worked me up the way that I clearly needed to be worked up. And by the time I turned 18, I was physically very burnt out. And I ended up spending my first year of college staying home and just going to specialists and chasing a diagnosis that I wasn't really sure I was gonna find. And I was starting to think I was either crazy or just a weak person. And I might be both in the end, but I was also someone living with primary immune deficiency disease or hypogammaglobulinemia, anemia. And that diagnosis ended up coming from an infectious disease doctor not long after I turned 19. And it really did change everything about my life and the way that I saw myself.
0: So relatable, know it well. How did you get to that doctor and what was that test?
1: I got to that doctor via my stepdad and the synagogue that he attends. So he went there to openly pray for me. And out of the blue, an infectious disease doctor is there in shul and says, you know, bring her in. Let me see what I can do. Honestly, by the time that we got to that appointment, I was so unwell. I was being carried into that office by my mother, my stepfather. And I was really reluctant to go because I had been gaslit so much at this point that I was not into it. But this doctor was great. He spent an hour taking my history, another hour like writing up different blood tests for me. And it took about a week, week and a half for him to to get back to us, but as soon as he did, he was like, you need to go directly to the hospital and start immunoglobulin therapy because you have no immune system right now. Do not pass go. You know, it was terrible, but also one of the best days of my life because I had been searching for so long And I wanted so badly to know what the problem was. And so to finally have, it was really a huge relief.
0: Yeah. I think that that's such a common thing of you're searching for so long. Then all of a sudden you get this information and all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, my entire life just shifted in some way, good or bad. But ultimately I have this diagnosis to attach to now. What does my life look like from here? What do you remember about that 19 years of searching? Because as you said, I went through 10 years of pre-diagnosis from birth until I was 10 years old. And I'm curious to know like what your memories are of navigating doctors and, as you said, being gaslit.
1: So for the most part, at that time, before it had that first diagnosis, I was a kid. So a lot of it was pediatric. So A lot of it was my mother taking me to the doctors. And I just I knew even as a child, things were not normal with me because I would go to school and I would see, you know, you go to school, kids get flus, they get colds. And I would see kids get the flu, leave for two days and then come back well. And I just could not wrap my mind around it. As a child who would get the flu and I would be out for a month, I'd probably end up in the hospital. So I, I really, as a kid, I, I knew that there was something different, wrong, and my mother was a great advocate for me she would really take me to these doctors and be like please listen please do something please check her lungs for fluid and i just remember being in and out of a lot of doctors' offices and finally when i was like maybe 14 15 i started going to the doctor by myself and just learning how to advocate for myself as a teenager going into adulthood and i just remember walking in every time with just this burden of shame and this feeling like i'm gonna not i'm gonna leave here i'm not gonna have any answers Things are not going to get better and they're not going to believe me. And, And that was very often the case up until the diagnosis.
0: It's interesting that you had that moment at that age where you pivoted to going alone. Do you remember what change led you to that?
1: Frequency. It was just the frequency of how sick I was and the fact that my mother at that point was a single mother she was working. I needed to pick up the mantle and just start doing it myself. And I was missing so much school at that point too that I was constantly going into Speak with my principal and like advocate for myself because I was breaking truancy laws. Like I was just sick all the time. And you only get so many sick days a year. So they were going to flunk me out of school. So it was kind of everything kind of converged. And I just started being like, well, I'm the one. I need to be on top of this. It couldn't wait until I turned 18. Like I had to start. And what was the response from your school for that? I was really lucky. I'll put it that way I was really lucky. I had a great principal who would sit with me for hours and really made such a phenomenal effort to understand me and to understand what was wrong. He would speak on behalf of my teachers. I had a 504 plan. I hadn't, you know, individualized education plan for my disability, as I had had since I was a child, even without a diagnosis. But I was really lucky that my principal advocated for me. But there were a lot of instances where one on one, I would talk to my teachers, and they would just give me this very judgmental look like, you know, I'm sure you're fine. I'm sure it's not that that bad I'm sure you could try harder and I was killing myself quite literally just to go to school for even one class a day that, or or just an hour a day to go collect my work and do my education at home
0: what kind of conversations were you having about this with your peers if at all
1: I was so ashamed back then I think that without the words to explain what was happening to me, I was taking on other people's definitions of what was happening to me. I was harboring so much shame that I really had a hard time talking about it. It really wasn't until I was in college that I started to attach the word chronic illness or chronic fatigue, you know, and realize that there were other people like me out there with these things. But I didn't see that in high school at all. And nobody spoke with me and explained it to me. I feel like there's such a large community today. And you can go online, you can find everything today. And not that I didn't have the internet. I was in high school from like 2004 to 2008. So I mean, we were early stages, but the community is not what it is today online for what I was going through.
0: Oh, yeah, it's evolved in such a major way. As you said, I think a huge part of it has to do with age, because I wonder about kids teenage years and 20s, if they had access that we do now what that would look like and what they would be able to achieve and realize that like there are other people out there that are going through this stuff. I think I've said on a previous podcast episode many moons ago that I had a friend who had fibromyalgia that I went to sleepaway camp with. She was one of my best friends. She was super, super vocal about it. I can picture her bag filled with pain medication. And she talked about it regularly. It was a known fact about her. And I never in my life, prior to, you know, 11 years ago, acknowledged that she and I had something in common. And I always sort of saw her as the sick girl. And I was certainly not the sick person.
1: I was so afraid of having that label of being the sick girl. I really like it was for some reason in my head, I really felt like that was going to ruin me. And then when I was in college, I met my first friend who had a chronic illness. And I was like, oh, I don't have to mask this around her. Like I can tell her what's going on. She's not going to judge me. She taught me so many things about how to be social with a chronic illness and not be ashamed of it, which was amazing. I wish I'd had that in high school because it was so isolating.
0: I think that's where the world is slowly shifting around all of these topics to try to get kids and teens and college students to be more empowered to share their stories. Because as we have both learned sharing our stories has helped empower other people to do what they're doing in their lives. What do you think it was about that doctor that diagnosed you that had the patience and the interest and dedication to actually helping you get an answer?
1: I think that's an interesting question. I thought about it a lot. You know, truthfully, I wonder if he felt like because he knew my family that he couldn't let us down. Maybe he was just really good at his job. Maybe he just on a fluke recognized those symptoms. Maybe it was because by the time I came into his office, I was half dead and he did not want me to fully die in his office. Any of the immunologists that I had seen or allergists or pediatricians up until this point had the capacity, had the knowledge, but just didn't make the effort for me which is disappointing.
0: I've had a lot of conversations about this recently. I think there's a lot of doctors that don't look at the full picture. Yes. They'll do the allergy test and go, all right, you test negative for all of this, go on your way. And don't look at everything going on. So how are they possibly going to get to an actual diagnosis if they're not looking at everything that you've dealt with?
1: I feel like I, you know, I, I spent so much time in the rare disease world that I wanted to do that because it felt like a lot of the doctors that I saw were just very surface level diagnostics. Like, do you have a peanut allergy versus do you have an immune deficiency, which is a huge part of their medical school curriculum. And it's like, what happened? Where is the disconnect from you learned all these things, but you're only applying the most surface level diagnoses to your patients. So
0: you get this diagnosis, you're told to immediately go to the doctor. What did your life look like from that day forward?
1: Messy. I wish I could say that it was a really straightforward, great path right after I was diagnosed, but it absolutely was not. The wonderful thing that I, that happened was that I was diagnosed. The not so wonderful thing was that I was diagnosed with a disease that not many doctors know how to treat, even if they know of it, even if they've heard of it. The further along that I've gotten in my journey with immunoglobulin therapy, which is the treatment for what I have, the more that I've realized that even though these doctors are prescribing these medications, they're very much not getting a full education on how they work and how they're administered. And so one of the things that I experienced after the initial diagnosis, the first thing they started me on was IVIG. And, you know, I went to the hospital and they gave me maybe like Benadryl, just a Benadryl pill before they started pumping it through me. And I, at the end of that, I ended up having aseptic meningitis. After my first two IVIG treatments, I had aseptic meningitis and I was so miserable. It was the worst headache of my entire life up until that point. And I really felt mistrustful of the doctor, the treatment, the whole process. And we ended up stopping. I reevaluated. I saw another immunologist who I was hoping knew a little bit more. He prescribed me with sub-Q treatment which was much better for me, I definitely tolerated it better. But the problem was that after six weeks, he was like, Okay, I'm going to look at your blood again and see if you've had any improvement. And six weeks is not enough time to adjust to immunoglobulin therapy, especially if you're 19 years old, and you've missed out on 19 years worth of this thing that your body has always been lacking. So he's like, Well, I'm not seeing enough improvement. So I'm going to take you off of this medication. And I'm just going to treat you the way that we've always treated you, which is like spectrum. spectrum antibiotics. And when I say that, I mean, I was on antibiotics every single day for years, years. So for the next like 10 years, I flailed. Like I struggled. I had major infections. I had sepsis. I was hospitalized. I had no clue what I was doing. None of my doctors had any clue what they were doing. And it wasn't until I was 30 years old that I found an immunologist that was like, what? Who? how did this happen? How did you get so poorly managed for the last decade? And she put me on immunoglobulin therapy, the right dosage, the right amount, explained everything to me. And now I've been on it for almost, gosh, it's been almost three years. And now my life has dramatically improved. Now I've been infection free for over two years, which is unheard of in my world because it was never ending. Like I said, an infection was just around the corner. Always.
0: I hate that you had to take that path of, going through all of this for so long, but the fact that you can say you're two years infection-free is massive. One of the things that I recognize in hosting this podcast and facilitating writing workshops and everything is celebrating those small wins and how important those are because it feels like, all right, you know, I haven't had an infection, but no, it's, I haven't had an infection. This is so huge. Let's bask in that goodness because you deserve it. Clearly, you took all this time and knowledge that you learned from your own experience to advocate for yourself. How did you get into
1: patient advocacy work? I think it was my mom who found her way into it first. Uh, She's a big advocate in the rare disease community. Her name is Carrie Levy, and she's the producer of Lifetime TV's Behind the Mystery Rare and Genetic. And she started the show not long after my diagnosis. Literally, she started it so that she could just learn about all these rare diseases and try to figure out what was the best thing for me. And I think she was the one who ended up pointing me towards global genes, which was my start in advocacy. And I had been working prior to that as a freelance writer and a publicist, but I was hired by them and I started working as the managing editor there. And I just never looked back. This was really important work that I was doing there. And I felt like, you know, if I'm going to apply my skills to anything, like it was going to be advocacy. What has that experience been like for you? I'm proud of my career in advocacy because I'm not coming from this place of having a master's degree. genetics or anything, you know, not at all. I I'm really just passionate about keeping patients alive and clearing a path forward with whatever tools you've got. And for me, that was writing that was marketing. And that was being able to have really tough conversations and relate to people through them. My career has been a little all over the place in advocacy in a in a wonderful way like I started at Global Genes as their managing editor. My job there was really intake, hearing patient stories, literally thousands of them, interviews, learning the ropes and eventually teaching new patients because we were really in, you know, a booming time for whole genome sequencing when I started there, teaching new patients how to start nonprofits and how to get involved in advocacy. So it was really a privilege to be able to work with a lot of these organizations that have grown so large at their start. And from Global Genes, I ended up, in the private sector, working for a company out of Tel Aviv called FDNA or face to gene And I worked remotely. That was a startup that used facial recognition technology to steer geneticists towards better understanding of different rare diseases. We built a genomics collaborative while I was there. And my job was to crowdsource patients and we really built some incredible data sets So helping to grow that technology that was going to help diagnose rare disease patients was really meaningful to me. And then after that, I freelanced for a while. At that point, my first book had been published and I was doing speaking engagements and consulting for different pharma companies. And finally, I landed at a company called Wego Health, which is a pharmaceutical advertising agency. And they've recently been acquired by a company called Health Union. So that's where I work now as an associate director of community.
0: You mentioned your book. So I want to dig into that. When did you decide to write a book and what
1: was the process of writing it? I think I decided to write a book when I was like seven. (laughs) I was always going to write a book. I, you know, I used to think I would be like a young adult romance novelist, or like I'd write an angsty teen novel, but it ended up being a chronic illness self-help book, which was unexpected. And I actually started blogging first because it was like the early 2000s. So it was a real vibe back then. And I just wrote about, you know, what having a chronic illness in your twenties was actually like, like all the things it impacted, college, my first job, moving out, being in a relationship, all while struggling to figure out, you know, who are you as a person? and then as a person with a disease that wasn't going to go away it really took off and i and i built this core audience so this caught the attention of a publisher and i actually had a publishing deal with another company before the one that ended up publishing it and that publishing company like went under before the book came out so I was devastated and I was hospitalized at the time of course so I started writing query letters like from my hospital bed and eventually landed with my literary agent Jill Marsal and she carried me through my first book deal and just signed me for my second so the first book was with new Harbinger and the new one is with Ben Bella books which is a division of penguin random house
0: So if readers were to take away one message
1: from your first book, what would you want that to be? It would be that you can do it your own way. And maybe you've only been fed examples of how able-bodied people kind of grow into adulthood, but you're not alone. And people with all different types of disabilities have to grow into their own too. And it's okay to take your own path and protect your peace and find different ways of existing as an adult than what your siblings or parents or peers did. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I also hope people keep in mind that this book is kind of a, it's not for advanced veteran, chronically ill, patients. It's just kind of like a starter guide. I think the marketing got a little mixed with that message. I know I've seen reviews that were like, nothing here rocked my world. I'm like, yeah, you've been living with the disease for 50 years. So this is not going to be anything terribly new to you. But my next book, it's going to be a lot more broad of an audience that applies to all female patients.
0: But that's really interesting that you got feedback like that. I just turned around to look at my bookshelf. This book, Chronic Resilience by Danae Horn, who facilitated a writing workshop for Made Visible a few years ago. And it was the first book I ever picked up around chronic illness in probably 2012 or 2013, many, many years into a diagnosis, but many years into not acknowledging that I belonged and that this book was meant for me. And the entire book is something that I have highlighted. Every single word was something that I related to. It depends on where you are in your journey, Because yes, I can read it now, 10, 11 years later, and still relate to it. But reading it for the first time and reading someone else saying the things that you feel is so, so powerful. Oh my God, I'm not the only person going through that.
1: Absolutely. I've got a lot of messages like that as well. I think the only reason that the other ones stick with me is just because I've been doing so much content creation over the last couple of years. And Even though I know that people, they they do appreciate, they really do appreciate the relatability of being vulnerable with your chronic illness out loud. There's a lot of them too, who are just, they're in so much need for tactical instruction. And that's such a missing piece of the puzzle for so many of us. And, And when we've lived for years and years and years and keep coming across these same problems again and again, it just there's a hope and an expectation that when you pick up these books, there's going to be the answer as I work as a content creator. And as I work on this next book, it's really been a goal of mine to be like, I want to give you the answer. Like I want to give you the full breadth of all the experiences that we've collected over time, specifically in the last five, 10 years on on how to talk to our doctors and how to overcome all these really common obstacles that are relatable, but we don't want them to be relatable anymore. We want these to just be old things that we can repurpose and just have a completely different experience. You mentioned the
0: relationship component. I'm curious to know When you met your husband, how and when
1: you told him about your health? It was early, but then so much of our relationship was early because we met when we were 17 years old. So we were high school sweethearts and we have been together now half our lives. We had texted and like, I'm going to really age myself here, but we texted in MySpace (laughs) message. But when we actually met, like I was trying to like hide it. I literally was able to hide it for like three days. I was healthy for three days of our relationship. And then I was like, no, I can't go out on a date. I have a sinus infection. And my husband has just been an amazing advocate for me throughout our entire life and relationship together. And part of that, I think, is because. One. Okay. It's a weird thing for me. It's a weird thing every time I tell someone this, but like the day that I met him, I was like, this will be the man that I marry. Like no question in my head. This will be the man that I married. And I explained this to my mom after the first date. And she was like, okay, well then I guess we need to like bring him into the loop here. And explain to him how to be an advocate for you. So maybe like two months into our relationship, whenever I had to go to the emergency room, he was coming to the emergency room. I'm, my mom was literally giving him instructions on how to advocate for me in the emergency room. And you, you have to remember he's 17. He's a 17 year old boy for him to put in the effort to learn these things and to be there for me. Like, well, it's, it's, it's worked out. We'll say that. He's still in the picture. I'm thrilled
0: oh, yeah. to hear it. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned your second book, which is a combat guide for women facing medical gaslighting. What made you focus on medical gaslighting?
1: It's been the biggest obstacle i think in my life to getting care is simply like not being believed or being dismissed or being told that my symptoms were a symptom of you know ambiguous mental illness when that just wasn't the case and i thought to myself originally working at global genes here I was taking in all these patient stories and seeing medical gaslighting over and over again in every literally every single one of them i originally thought oh it's just the rare disease world Like, it's just rare diseases that this happens to. But then I started to branch out in my advocacy work and realize, oh, it's not just rare disease. It's literally, if you are a woman and you come to a doctor with anything that is not like the most painfully obvious injury or illness, gaslighting happens. Like it just happens to all of us. And once I realized like how universal a problem that was, what did we do? How do we respond to that? What are we supposed to say when these scripts have already been written by the medical community, you know, we're going to tell patients, all your all your test results are normal. So everything's fine. But no one had really developed the comeback for what to say to these doctors when they would give us these statements that were just so extremely unhelpful and would set us back. So I you know, I started doing a really deep dive on women's health and the history of it. And how did we get here as a community of patients? And what are the biggest problems systemically? And what are the biggest problems one on one? And how are we going to that out.
0: I'm so glad you're addressing this. It's such a huge problem. It's not just the rare disease world. So many people are being affected by this. So what words of advice do you have for patients who are dealing with the emotional toll of medical gaslight and how can they feel empowered to advocate for themselves?
1: One of the biggest ideas that I want to make sure people understand is that the goal of medical gaslighting is to get patients to stop seeking care. That is what the goal is. If I can shame you out of worrying, out of questioning, then you will leave this office and me alone. I want to be really clear on this. We are at war. You are fighting for your life against medical gaslighting. The consequences of being ignored when it comes to your health concerns isn't just that you're made to feel crazy, you can die. Women have died. Many women have died. And so, especially with this book that I'm writing, it's a combat guide in in the same way you'd look at like a survival guide. You know, we're going to talk about strategy, about recognizing risks and red flags. And we're going to talk about how we can make smarter decisions, not perfect ones, but ones we realistically have access to based on our strengths and our resources and our mental health.
0: It's so huge. When does this come out?
1: This comes out fall 2024.
0: Oh my God. Amazing. So you have an email set up so that women can share their stories with you to be included in the book. Why is
1: highlighting the experience of others important to you? The reason that I wanted to include multiple narratives is is I really wanted to show that this is so widespread. I want to show you how it looks because sometimes gaslighting is very sweet and quiet and it's not, you know, being screamed at. It's not being told you're an idiot. It's just like comforting. And I want you to be able to see that In different scenarios, it looks like different things. But at the end of the day, you are being gaslit out of care. I could fill this entire book on almost every topic that I'm covering with my own experiences. But I think the most interesting thing about this topic is that I'm not alone in having been medically gaslit. And I want women to see themselves represented here, you know, their experiences, the things the world sets a bias against them to get treatment. So I am collecting a variety of stories and doing interviews. I've done many so far. I'm still open to collecting many more still for this book and for projects to come after. So if you have a story that you want to share, please send it to me. You can send it to I was not heard at gmail.com and I will read it and I will try to see if there's a relevant space for it either in the book or I'm looking at different ways to share these stories because it has been a flood, a torrent. Every woman has a story and all of them are important, valuable, relatable. Thank you for doing that. I think it's such an opportunity
0: for people to feel more seen and heard in this community. You acknowledge being a content creator early on and you have a doctor conversation TikTok series where you act out how patients can advocate for themselves with providers. It's
1: incredible. Thank you. What kind of response have you gotten from this series? Oh man, so many wonderful responses, which is why I keep doing them. You know, it's funny working in pharma marketing. One of our most popular resources in advertising is this like doctor discussion guide. A lot of them make me laugh because they're just like, ask your doctor X, Y, Z, and, and they'll say yes. And I'm like, mm. And in my videos, I'm like, no, that's doctors probably going to fight with you or make you explain yourself. And I know, you know, that's what actually happens. So I try to make cohesive arguments for things like, you know, getting a hysterectomy or requesting imaging or coming to the ER with painful periods and wanting to be worked up. You know, there are no easy conversations and we need to see them modeled realistically.
0: What do you think is the biggest piece of advice that you can provide to someone who doesn't know how to advocate for themselves?
1: I think the best advice that I could provide would be to start talking about it. I think that you're going to find that all the women around you have had this experience in some way. And I think opening the door to that vulnerability, to having those conversations with other women, you're going to see both what did and did not happen. So there are people that... You know, that fight it and that have their own way of like just having the audacity and having this abrupt kind of courage to talk back. And it doesn't always work out great the way that they do it. But it's nice to know that like there are different ways to respond. There are other people that kind of go quietly and then they don't seek care. And then the problem grows. And later on, they realize it would have been worth it to speak up. It would have been worth it to have the courage to fight what my doctor was telling me and ask for more. So I think if, if you're nervous about being gaslit, you have been gaslit, you don't know how to respond, my best advice is to just start talking about it so that people can start talking back to you about what they've seen and what's what they've experienced. And you can let that guide you. You can let that empower you. We've heard on the show many
0: times how many people have felt so small in doctor's offices and don't feel like they have a voice and the ability to get their questions answered and get the care that they deserve and need. If you could address a single misconception about
1: patients, what would it be? That they want to be patients. I guess you know, no one wants to be a patient or to be an advocate. No one popped out of the womb and decided they were you know, interested in the struggle. I think society places that burden on us as the patient and we have you know, that we have some sort of desire to be sick, um, especially if we're advocates, like, it gives us purpose. And, you know, like, I could have been a hairdresser with purpose, like I could have been like anything with purpose, but this is what happened. And I'm making the best of it. So others don't have to live through the worst of it. Thanks for that
0: for you, for what you do for what you do for the rare disease community and the invisible illness community, because we need more people like you. And hopefully, that's what your book will do for people who just don't feel like they have a voice. So thank you for writing this. What do you wish people knew about invisible illness?
1: It's okay to believe people when they say that they have one. You know, it's not hard to believe people. Yes, you run the risk of being deceived. But if that's how you treated everyone in your life, that they were lying to you about something that serious, you'd never get close enough to anyone to know them as a person. And what a waste that would be.
0: Thank you so much for this conversation. It's such an important one. How can people learn more about
1: you, find your content and get your first book? Well, first, I just want to say thank you. The show is amazing. The show has helped so many people, including myself. And I really appreciate you having me on. If people want to find out more, they can visit me everywhere. I'm on Instagram at Alana, which is I-L-A-N-A underscore Jacqueline. That's my username on TikTok as well. And my website, alanajaclyn.com, will have the latest news about my books. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your support means the world to us. Visit madevisiblestories.com to check out our writing workshops, corporate offerings, and more information that can help you in navigating life with an invisible illness. Follow Made Visible Stories on Instagram. See you next week.